I want to get out of town. I want to go to Jasper. I'd like to do that a couple times this summer. I don't exactly have a plan for when, though, so that's starting to scare me a little bit. Like, am I going to be able to make that work? Like, it shouldn't be too bad. Like, two days seems short, like just on my regular weekend mm-hmm. to, to like go and do a backpack backpacking trip. But I think that if I could take a long weekend a couple times during the summer, I might be able to pull it off. Yep. Just do like a little backcountry hike, something relatively easy, but so that I can still like hike in somewhere, set up camp, you know, I think that would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Have you done Edith Cavell before? No. That's a good like hike. as a, Oh, like as a day hike? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I love that mountain. I mean, obviously it's beautiful, Mm -hmm. but yeah, that sounds cool. Did you guys do that while you were up there as well? No, that's one that I did um, (laughs) in 2006, the last time I was there. Okay, I got you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a mountain. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. So, Well, Well, actually, it it is going somewhere very slowly, but... Yeah, and also there's a glacier on it, and that is definitely going somewhere very fast. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. Food Court. I'm Shale McDonald, and I'm here with my co-host and friend, Alan Sutterby. Hi, friend. How are you, Alan? Good. We're two chefs from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. We love food, and we love to talk about it. Well, Alan, we don't really have a topic, do we? This is so awkward. Oh, my God. This is frightening. Normally, everything is totally planned. In fact, the entire podcast is normally scripted. Mm -hmm. We just read from a script, but somebody forgot to write a script for this one. Um, Yeah, we just have like some random odds and ends that we wanted to talk about. And I think some follow up and things like that. And hopefully it's a show, right? Yeah. I mean, not every show has to have a dumb topic, right, Alan? I mean, every show has to have content. Right, exactly. But that content doesn't necessarily need to be limited to a single topic. Honestly, the way that I think about it is like, this is not a very... Your fantastic technical work and editing notwithstanding, this is <laughs> this is not a very polished um, or or like you said, scripted podcast. This is basically you and I um taking what opportunity we have to talk about food and to talk to each other which we don't get to do totally. regularly so the way that i'm seeing this particular recording is um we have a short list of about a dozen items no not i don't know something <laughs> like a dozen items where it's like oh yeah really want to tell you about Chat this about or, that, or or yeah, yeah follow up on this and um so we're going to try that Yeah. And the unpolished, unscripted nature of this podcast is intentional. (laughs) Yes, because it's easy. (laughs) I mean, it's partially because it's easy and it's partially because, yeah, we get to talk to each other. And I think that it's fun to just like have our conversations and have have like a record of that. And yeah, (laughs) you know, for legal purposes, as you do. Right. (laughs) 
<laughs> for posterity. <laughs> the modern way of having conversations where everything is recorded for yeah. posterity. <laughs> like my my grandchildren will be like <laughs> Hey, exactly. do you want to, do you want to hear your you want to hear your granddad talk for ten thousand hours podcast? Ah, <laughs> uh, no thanks. No thanks. I want I want to go uh, hang out with my um, virtual yeah. reality boyfriend or whatever. Yeah. How come it's not in three D audio? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so what should we talk about, Alan? <laughs> what should we start with? <laughs> I'm gonna you you often kind of like voice this part of uh you're like it's your it's your episode you want to talk show, about Alan. the 11 Madison Park cookbook for two hours Time so to... you t- you introduce the topic I'm gonna do that to you today um okay sounds good okay well one of our mini topics is I guess that um my job has been going crazy in the last few weeks your job went um, viral my job went viral yeah exactly so and which is kind of ironic given the topic of our last show um Mm -hmm. that it was all about tiktok Mm -hmm. and then in the intervening weeks since we in the intervening two weeks since we recorded that episode um kind ice cream where i work uh had like a bit of a (laughs) viral um (laughs) video situation on uh, yeah, <laughs> viral episode <laughs> on TikTok, wherein um, another uh, like Edmontonian food TikToker uh, posted a video uh, about going to one of our shops to get um, Dunkaroos ice cream, which is uh, a flavor that we are running during the month of May. Mm-hmm. Um and therefore will no longer be available by the time that you hear this podcast. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Unless it gets put on the forever <laughs> list. No, what's it called? The always list. Oh God, Alan, please don't me. The the logistics of, uh, sorry, let's get back to the topic at hand. <laughs> I could see it happening. Now that you mention it, I could see it happening and I'm frightened. Mm-hmm. I'm going to um, start a petition. Yeah. You and everyone else. Um, so yeah, we we run for the past two years. We've uh, run a flavor during the month of May um, that is like supposed to taste like Dunkaroos. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, I guess popular '90s lunch snack. Um, Why did you say it like that? you didn't have packed because honestly like in the 90s it seemed to me to be somewhat niche but i guess it is quite like the idea of dunkaroos i guess is quite tied to the 90s i don't know anyways every may we run a 90s series Mm -hmm. and dunkaroos is like the star of the show Mm -hmm. in that series um we also have deep and delicious which is a cake from the 90s alan i don't know if you've heard of it McCain's deep and delicious. That's right. Shale. When Marie Antoinette said, let them eat cake, (laughs) did she mean McCain's deep and delicious cake? Clearly, because it's the democratize, it's the most democratizing of frozen Mm. grocery store cakes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Dunkaroos, deep and delicious, and 
Uh, Dunker is deep and delicious and grape crush sorbet. And was that, did, did crush soda only make grape flavor in the nineties? I mean, honestly, that was sort of what I, that was kind of like my nitpick. <laughs> when when we were coming up with ideas for the 90s series it seemed weird to me to have flavors that were based in the 90s mm-hmm. but i was clearly wrong like mm-hmm. in my thinking about how to market ice cream to people who are obsessed with the 90s and the owners who came up with the ideas for the 90s series were clearly right um because it seems to have been very popular um, I, I think that although I definitely have had grape crush in the 80s, <laughs> the 90s and the aughts. 2000s, the 2010s and I mean I've definitely smelled it in the <laughs> 2020s. But what I don't the hell think does that I've mean? consumed. I mean I opened this this month alone I opened like probably 4000 cans of it and like the That's smell you... is <laughs> Okay, this conversation is happening the opposite way that like a newspaper article is supposed to ha- <laughs> newspaper articles are like in the first sentence you you reveal all of the relevant information so that everyone understands what the article That's right. is. We are but doing when the you opposite. talk to Shale, the key is that the lead is buried and then you have to dig buried and dig and dig to get that lead. Shale, we'll talk about it later, but I'm getting really big into newspapers and typesetting. <laughs> but anyways. Oh, um, cool. Um, That's a different podcast, but but okay. Getting back to Dunkaroos. <laughs> no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Oh, no, I'm not done with this. Okay. So like when, when you as a kind of uh, pragmatic and analytical guy, when you hear mm-hmm. 90s flavors, you immediately think like, okay, well, it has to be a flavor that is only associated with the 90s. And so it doesn't make sense to say something like, you know, grape crush when... That's been available. When Grape Crush for, is still available yeah. and still popular, as but, popular probably as it was in the nineties. Yeah, or but something. the 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 kind ice cream nineties flavors, they're not nineties flavors. Mm-hmm. They're what they are is like people who are between thirty and forty five right now. What they ate for lunch? Yes, like what, exactly. what they got in a packed lunch. Like that's what it actually is. But that's totally, not a, which not is what I did it. not understand about yeah. the marketing idea when it was initially proposed. But yeah. yeah, exactly. Our demographic associates certain things, or like our key demographic associates certain things with the 90s because yeah. they grew up in the 90s and had those things for lunch or, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. But of the things that are in our 90s series, mm-hmm. personally, I think that Dunkaroos has the strongest association with the 90s. Right. Because I I mean, I might be wrong about this, but it it seems to me like that was sort of like the height of Dunkaroo's popularity was in the 90s. Yeah. And like that that's when it was released, I think, right? Yeah, probably also. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of Dunkaroo's. So, <laughs> so speaking of Dunkaroo's. <laughs> Yeah, so um, an Edmonton food TikToker posted a video of going to Kind Ice Cream and getting a scoop of Dunkaroos. I think there may have been an addition, like a previous post where they went to the shop and couldn't get it. 
Oh, really? Because we were sold out or something. Um, but then that post started gaining popularity. Uh, who knows why? Only the people who have access to the inner workings of the TikTok algorithm, I would assume. I hear that's a really sticky um, algorithm. It's so sticky. Mm -hmm. uh, but somehow it started gaining popularity and getting a whole lot of likes. And then um, it started showing up on people's For You page. And apparently the uh, official Dunkaroos TikTok <laughs> that's account There's found no way out that's about it. The official Dunkaroos no, TikTok account. That sounds it made truly up. is a thing. And it truly is an official account. And they they um uh liked the post and then it started getting a lot more likes. And um so we just started getting inundated with customers who had never heard of our shop before, mm -hmm. um, who just came because they saw the Dunkaroos ice cream on TikTok. And we had like in the last in the last two weeks, we had something like, I don't know, five or six new like new sales records broken. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just trying to keep up with demand for Dunkaroos. And eventually one day like this past Tuesday, we had to close the shop because we were basically sold out of ice cream, not just Dunkaroos, but like oh, really? almost every single flavor. Yeah. This past Tuesday, like... We were just not able to keep up. Like, you can cut this out if you want, but yesterday? Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. So they broke Closed. <laughs> it really did break us. Like, yeah. there, there was just no way to keep up. Um, I mean, if we had had like three more people working in the kitchen we could have started churning well into the evening to try mm -hmm. and keep up and stuff like that but even like in terms of the logistics of being able to make and store the ice cream like it was like pushing the boundary of where we currently like what our current capacity is so. mm -hmm. can i like i there's a lot there's a i have a lot of questions but like sure to talk specifically about um kitchen and production logistics mm -hmm. how much were you because we'll, we'll get into situations where it's like say on a on a friday saturday we're going to run this special we know it's going to be popular mm -hmm. we know that we can only produce say a, a hundred portions of it yeah so we're going to earmark 50 for friday and then we're yeah. sold out even though we know we have 50 more in our back pocket for saturday were you doing mm -hmm. stuff like that? Like so that you could, for instance, like sell out every day at 2 PM in or whatever it is. It, it, I know you guys are open right. late, but like sell it every day yeah. partway through the day instead of like, just like having to full on close for a day. Did you do stuff like that or? Totally. So, um, so how it works for the most part for the flavors, like for, the monthly rotating flavors so for the always flavors we try to always have them hence the name <laughs> always um yeah and and in general like uh in the course of you know normal production we usually don't have much trouble keeping up with production for most of the always flavors mm -hmm. 
we have a really good understanding of how much we're going to sell. So we have a really good understanding of how much we need to produce to make sure that we don't ever run out. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's like two other sort of like tiers of flavors that we do. So there are monthly rotating flavors. Um, and included in that is the 90 series. So all the flavors we just talked about, Dunkaroos, Deep and Delicious, and Grape Crush. Uh, those flavors um, are available for the entire month of May. So from May 1st until May 31st, you should be able to go to the shop and get that flavor. Mm -hmm. And some of them wind up being like extremely popular. And so in some cases, it is difficult to keep up with demand for them. Um, and up until the like viral incident or whatever you want to call it, uh, we didn't really have too much problem keeping up with demand for Dunkaroos. Like we were making a lot of it, mm -hmm. but we weren't selling out. Right. But as soon as that TikTok went viral, we were like producing like twice as much as we had been, um, throughout the beginning of the month up until that happened mm -hmm. and we were still selling out like before the end of the day like we were doing pretty well we weren't usually selling out until like into the evening so like 7 30 or 8 o'clock at night and mm -hmm. we're open until 10 mm -hmm. um but but yeah we were selling out every day and so we were just producing as much as we could basically um but what that means is because our production capacity is somewhat limited by like we have one uh, ice cream batch freezer and um and so we can only and and so that means that basically we can churn like two to three batches of ice cream an hour or something like that mm -hmm. yeah um and a batch is around 25 liters and so you know we can churn like 50 to 75 liters of ice cream in an hour and then our day is kind of split up so the first people arrive and start churning at like eight in the morning and then uh the last people are leaving the kitchen currently at about 7 p.m so we kind of have to wrap up churning by about five because there's still like cleanup and a bunch of pinting um like taking the ice cream that we've churned and put it in putting it into pints mm -hmm. um, some of it um, and stuff like that. So we kind of have to wrap up churning like around five, five thirty, six o'clock at sort of the latest. And so there's like a nine hour window for us to basically produce as much ice cream as we possibly can. Um, and so we try to make a plan that allows us to like consecutively churn things really quickly. And we try to um, plan out the day so that um, we churn things in orders that aren't going to cause like allergen conflicts and things like that to sort mm -hmm. of like try to um because like you can clean out the machine um but if you have to like totally disinfect it or something to put in the next flavor uh because of an allergy issue that costs you time yeah. and obviously at some points during the day we have to do that um, but we try to organize the churning in an order so that um there aren't allergy conflicts so that we can um, do a quick rinse of the machine and put the next flavor in and that kind of thing mm -hmm. um kind of getting into the weeds there a little bit in terms of ice cream churning mm -hmm. um, but basically we have a capacity and with the amount of staff that we have, we can't really expand the hours in the day anymore. Um, 
without just spreading everyone too thin, um, without there not being enough people to handle the actual ongoing production. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we were basically just producing as much as we possibly could and still selling out. And then because we were selling out of Dunkaroos, like uh, once it went viral, we were selling out quite a bit earlier in the day. And then, uh, but, but people were still coming to the shop potentially to try and get some if like they hadn't seen on Instagram that we were sold out or something like that. And so then we were selling a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of the other flavors as well. Yeah. And uh, so by the end of like, so not the long weekend, but the weekend before we had a couple of record days and then we were kind of able to catch up again during the week. Um, But then over the long weekend we had like, um, three record days and by the end of it we had basically like sold every scrap of ice cream that we had yeah 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 it's interesting how those <laughs> there's a there's a bunch of different places i i would like to take this conversation but it, it is interesting how especially for small businesses how that kind of exposure affects things um mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like, in the long term, whether it's for good or for ill or or, or really what kind of effect it has. But we had something similar, mm-hmm. like, n- I think not not even remotely on the same scale as what you're experiencing. But with Zaltz, like, um, mm-hmm. we did a spot on global TV one morning. And that like had lineups out the door for the next two days um, and did start selling out of product. And um, yeah, we were not prepared for it at all. Um, And then a week later, like it, it had, you know, something else was on global news (laughs) the next weekend. And so it didn't translate into like a lasting, um, boost in business. What it did was overwhelm us for a weekend and give not everyone, but it gave a lot of people a, a, a somewhat negative experience of the restaurant because they had to wait in line and then, you know, for for quite a while, and then um, and then potentially get to the front of the line and you not have the product that they were maybe waiting in line for. Or yeah, exactly. Like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm. I don't know. Do you have any sense of is is that relatable to what you're experiencing now or I guess we don't know yet. yeah definitely like that that's sort of what's going through my head too is that like yeah it's yeah exactly it's sort of this weird double-edged sword right like it's it's great to be super busy and um you know it's it's great to have like you know really good sales days and then it it like kind of also benefits us in terms of like really showing us like viscerally like what our potential capacity is and Mm -hmm. and if we you know like and where the line is where we really truly need to like add more hours to our day or Mm -hmm. add more people to our roster or or whatever like you know it really clearly delineates those things which is useful um and then also I do think that there are quite a few, uh, like I heard a lot of stories um, from the people who work in front of house, uh, like from the scoopers and the front of house managers and shift leads that like, there were a lot of people coming in who had never heard of the shop mm-hmm. before yeah. they saw it on TikTok, And uh, like, 
like you said, it, it's kind of, you know, like that now they've heard of the shop, but then they come there and there's like a giant line wrapping around the block and it takes them an hour to get to the front. And like, how can, like, I don't know, it, it to me, if I waited in line for an hour for something, it would be pretty hard to like meet or exceed my expectations, you know, like, yes. Yeah. And, and so like, I feel like for probably for a lot of those customers, you know, like they came expecting something amazing because there's this like giant lineup. And I do think that our ice cream is amazing, Mm -hmm. but like what can live up to like waiting for an hour? Like I wouldn't do that. Right. You know, like I would just go somewhere else and come back when there wasn't a line. So, mm-hmm. yeah, like it, it's hard maybe for me to like fully relate to that psychology. Mm-hmm. But like in a way, it's sort of like I think maybe cements are like cements the quality of our business or something in people's minds because they show up and there's this like giant line. And so like it must be worth waiting for right right? if all these people are waiting for it so even if you get to the front of the line and you're like okay yeah that was good i don't know if i would wait for it for an hour again yeah you still are gonna be like that was crazy like i went to this ice cream shop and there was a lineup (laughs) that went around the block for this weird flavor like (laughs) i you know like it it's definitely like like i i think it makes for like a pretty crazy story and a pretty like memorable experience. And so in that way, I definitely think that it's positive, but then also, you know, like we are overwhelmed. The front of house staff is like, well, overwhelmed and like, they still do a great job, but you know, like when you get to the front and (laughs) you see like these people that that look like they're being crushed by a bus, you're just Mm -hmm. like, okay, this, you know, like, so, so I, I I think that, that, you know, like there is a negative to being, like really overwhelmed like that because a you're probably not giving the very best customer service experience mm-hmm. you know like yep. when 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 people really have to wait and then you know you and and as a person who's serving the customers you're in a pretty stressful situation uh you know like i'm sure everybody does their best to like be as congenial and meet the customer's expectations as much as possible but you know like everyone can see that everyone is feeling rushed you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, but I think overall, like, I think it's a net positive for the business, you know, right. like, I think yeah. there are a lot more people this week that know about us mm-hmm. and potentially will give us another shot at some point during the summer. Um, that is, you know, it's kind of so. an interesting, um, peek into, I feel like in, in a town like Edmonton, the independent, um, like restaurant and food service, um, community is, is fairly insular and, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you get it sometimes when you're, when you're really, um, deeply embedded in that scene, you think that like, because you've got, however, do you have 10,000 followers on Instagram or whatever it is? Um, you feel like you've really, like you've hit market saturation, but then there's there really it, it's such a, a small part of Edmonton that is paying attention to that scene 
and you look at yeah exactly other places like other, a lot of those people are, you know like a lot of that community a lot of and, and especially on social media like a lot of the people that you're talking about are like a pretty yeah a pretty like tight-knit kind of like foodie community right mm-hmm. but there is like you know in edmonton in general you know like there are tons and tons of people who aren't really tapped into that mm-hmm. like you know the social media promotion and like the independent restaurant scene and all of that kind of stuff. People who, you know, like go to chain restaurants mostly or, but, but then I think like what's kind of worked really well, um, in kind's favor. Yeah. Um, and, and it's really like an intentional thing, uh, in terms of the, uh, idea that the owners had when they started it is like, well, a like ice cream is pretty universally attractive, but then mm-hmm. if you put it in a relatively small neighborhood, like the, we definitely rely on social media for a lot of our promotion, but like, I wouldn't say that the bulk of our customers like have found out about kind through social media. Mm-hmm. Like most, I would say the bulk of our customers are people who live in the neighborhoods where our shops are. Right. And that's, you know, like, and, and so it, I don't know, like it provides, I think a much more reliable base of customers, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that, that independent restaurants that can kind of tap into that, like, um, sort of less fickle kind of, um, customer base and, and a customer base that's more based on like, location for instance or just like um like not just location but potentially also like the uniqueness of their product or something like that mm-hmm. um university universality and uniqueness or something those two things work together to like um you know sort of break out of the foodie kind of right community vibe and into like a more mainstream sort of customer base and like i think honestly to be like successful long term you kind of have to break into that more mainstream kind of customer base yeah totally you can kind of serve it like you can get a lot of hype at the beginning of, of a project or something um and get a lot of the foodies and food bloggers and things to come to your place but like you know and that might garner attention on social media but if that doesn't necessarily translate into people coming in and dining in your spot then it doesn't necessarily really help all that much you know Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know that sounds kind of of negative or something about the foodie community and i I don't mean it in that way like i think that there's i think that it's great that there are people who are super into food and, and want to talk about it on social media but i don't think necessarily or at least in edmonton um that piece of the food community is not quite large enough to support all of the ambitions of all the independent restaurateurs in Edmonton. Like you kind of need to break down that wall at some point. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Um, there's something, (laughs) there's something really weird happening right now that, okay. Um, you can cut this out if you want, but we are recording during a thunderstorm and we are you Which and killing you, me because I really want to look out my window at it, but I have to have my shade drawn. You, you and I are miles apart, and what's happening is I hear thunder roll over my head, 
And then a few seconds later, I hear it coming into my headphones from your microphone. Yeah, totally. Um, anyways, this is like a crazy thing that's happening. <laughs> um, so that's happening. But anyways, um, and I, I'm probably going to leave this in because I'm sure that the thunder in the recording is going to be pretty obvious. So, right. uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that. Well, I just saw a huge flash of lightning. <laughs> so you're going to hear thunder in about seven seconds. Just so you know. Um, oh, perfect. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think there is a like not not across the board, but there's a little bit of like a in the independent scene here, like a bit of a reluctance to what they might call pander to that wider audience through things like whatever it is, like mm-hmm. billboards and and kind of other like mass marketing means. Um, but yeah, especially with, like you said, things that are so universally loved, like whether it's ice cream or pizza or hamburgers or smoked meat or whatever it is like it's it's such a boon to the business to be able to to spread the word of that product far beyond the rather um you know like i said insular um like quote unquote foodie social media scene um it it really does yeah it seems like the only way to add longevity to the business because it yeah, it's so yeah totally. To and I think and... like one of those outlets can be like global television or like those kinds of spots and stuff. But it seems even with those types of things, like, yeah, it seems like that audience, like they get interested for a week and then they're kind of mm-hmm. like, well, that's, yeah, that's the natural that cycle of like, yeah, for, for, for global, that's like the, it's the, it's the weekend morning spots that are really highly viewed. And so it has a natural cycle to it. Like every, every week there's going to be a new one. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what the cycle is like on TikTok because I've only been on TikTok for one week, but, um, um, <laughs> well, if, if it aligns with like how long the chunk of content that you have to watch is, <laughs> right, yeah. then, then the global TV bump probably lasts for two days and the TikTok bump lasts for two hours. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> It's like an order of magnitude difference, I'm sure. It's basically the Andy Warhol quote at this point, right? Like that everybody everybody has their 15 minutes kind of thing. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sorry, not to downplay what kind is experiencing. That's I mean, it's exciting. Yeah. And I I do think it's good for for uh more people to hear about kind. Um people who don't necessarily follow all of the the exact right social media people in Edmonton. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like that, that's, I think sort of the key there is that like, it wasn't like a prominent food blogger. It was sort of like sort of somebody outside of that. And then, you know, like it was, and then the people who wound up viewing it on TikTok were like really outside of that. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I think in that way it was like really helpful, even though it's been an exhausting couple of weeks for me. Do we need to talk about how the, allegedly the official Dunkaroos account liked your post, even though you're clearly infringing on their trademark and not even using their product in the ice cream. Do we need to talk about that or should we just not talk? Yeah, about we it? should definitely address it oh, because okay. I'm sure that that's, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. They, they just, uh, and, and it wasn't our post to be fair. It was like this other person who posted about us. I think that, I think that we maybe reposted it or just liked it mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, 
Um, and then, yeah, I guess the original Dunkaroos <laughs> account, we're just, I, I don't know if they <laughs> don't care about patent or uh, trademark infringement or if they're, they're happy that someone is like infringing on their trademark right. because they want the brand recognition or what the situation is. But um, yeah, they never said anything you know um, i've been here to, to, to be make honest us think that they were annoyed that we just wholesale like stole their name and used it as a flavor of ice cream i've so. been hearing it for years but now i know for a fact yeah the the legal team at dunkaroos is soft i knew it <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean you know Maybe next year when we run Dunkaroos again and, <laughs> and, they, <laughs> and they see it pop up on TikTok again or whatever social media network is like blowing up next year. Maybe they'll be like, okay. And they see there's like promotional videos for the Dunkaroos ice cream release and all of the kind owners are like driving Lamborghinis and stuff. Then the legal team will be yeah, like, exactly. oh, wait a minute. There's something. Oh man, Alan, I can't wait for my Dunkaroos Lamborghini. <laughs> is the um is the okay, so is this a thing? Every every May is 90s flavors? Well, last year and this year. Okay. But I don't know if that makes it a yearly tradition or not, but sure. The and the yeah, the, but last year and this year it was the same flavors, right? The same three flavors. Yeah, that's right. Mm. And they were all quite popular, so I don't see why we wouldn't just do it again next year. Hmm. And then we also snuck in. Okay, so I kind of didn't quite get to the end of my um, my description of the tiers of our flavors, mm -hmm. um, but yeah. So we also so we have the monthly flavors, which we try to have on hand all the time. Because you were asking about whether we try to ration mm -hmm. the flavors mm -hmm. um, to make sure that we have some for the next day, kind of thing. And so how we do that with the monthly rotating flavors is we just try and produce enough that we're not going to run out. And if if it becomes extremely popular for a few days or something because it blows up on social media or something and we happen to sell out for a few days, we just try to produce more so that hopefully, theoretically, at some point we can catch up with demand. Mm -hmm. um, but then we also run flavors uh, sometimes for like a single weekend. Okay. And we try to promote it a little bit ahead of time and say, hey, we're going to drop this fancy flavor. It's only going to be available, you know, for one weekend only. Um, and in those cases, we try to do some rationing. Mm -hmm. The problem with trying to ration for us, though, is that um, to some extent, the business is quite weather dependent. You can like you can say, OK, well, we're going to have like two pails of this flavor to sell at each of our shops for each of the three days of this long weekend. Mm -hmm. But then like, let's say that your Saturday is like extremely busy and you run out early, but then Sunday is not busy because there's like a crazy thunderstorm or something. Mm -hmm. And then you have all of the ice cream that you've reserved for Sunday. So you have a bunch of ice cream that you wouldn't sell to people on the Saturday that was really busy. And then 
you don't sell it on the Sunday or whatever because mm-hmm. the weather is horrible. And then you have to sell twice as much potentially on the Monday and then you wind up with some leftover. Right. Um, so it's it's a really weird, tricky balance to try to make that work. Um, to, you know, because like it's also not really worth running a flavor if you're just going to run out at like 2 p.m. on the first day that you have it or something, you mm-hmm. know, because then you promote it and then people show up to the shop hoping to get it. And, you know, like from the first two hours that you had it, it was just all gone. And then everybody else that shows up for the whole weekend isn't able to get it. Mm-hmm. You know, not everybody's checking the availability of the flavor all the time. You know, they might just see one post fly by on like a Thursday that's like, oh, this weekend we're going to have this flavor. Mm-hmm. And then they, you know, show up on Sunday afternoon and we're completely sold out. That's also not great. So it's it's kind of a weird line to try to ride. Um, and I don't know, we're still trying to kind of figure that out. Um, personally, I, I kind of feel like it's better to try and keep people informed and only make enough that you know you're going to sell it out if you say that you're only going to have it for one weekend or whatever. Right. But, but yeah, like he, he, that can be the philosophy, but it's still really hard to determine like what the numbers are that go along with that. So you need a you need a kind ice cream app that shows real time quantities on hand <laughs> what we have. for all of the flavors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Try and get your grandma to download that app, Alan. <laughs> um, it's interesting to me that it's always the same three. Sorry, always the last two years. <laughs> Your comment that like, well, we've done these three flavors the last two years and they sell really well. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It's interesting to me to hear that from you. Oh, yeah. Because it's such a ripe... Like, uh, in what way? Well, like 90s is so broad and, and so it has such uh, so many creative avenues. Well, yeah. And that that's why, um, you know, like when you sort of like pressed me on like whether it's an annual thing that we run those flavors. Mm-hmm. Like we've done it for the last two years, but I suspect that we won't have all three of these flavors in May again next year. Mm-hmm. I would be really surprised if we didn't have Dunkaroos right. in our 90s series next year. But I I would imagine that at least one of the sh- flavors will get shaken up in the 90s series. So which one's on the chopping block? Deep and Delicious? I mean, if I had my druthers, it would be Grape Crush. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's fun. It's a cool idea, but we're basically like, (laughs) we're basically opening cans of grape crush and pouring them into an ice cream machine. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly that simple. Like, is that we like, we use a sorbet base and, you know, we add a certain amount of like sugar and citric to make it, you know, a similar flavor and with a similar sort of like bite and stuff like that. And, Mm -hmm. um, so that it so that the consistency will be correct because you can't just pour grape crush into an ice cream machine and have it come out as sorbet right um but uh but yeah basically you know like and that doesn't feel like i i don't think i mean it's popular and it's fun but you know like i it's kind of i don't know it just doesn't feel very wholesome i guess to me and and i think it doesn't feel wholesome also to like you know probably most of the people that are producing it and serving it like mm-hmm. it's a fun idea but mm-hmm. but if it, yeah if we had to replace one i would say probably grape crush would be the one to go and what do you want to replace it with 
<laughs> oh man, putting me on the spot. I wasn't even. Oh yeah, I wasn't. I was. I. <laughs> I was alive in the '90s, Alan, but it wasn't like really eating school lunches for most of it. So, well, I was. <laughs> Oh, well, so here's some... some suggestions. <laughs> I've prepared a statement. <laughs> this turned into a single topic show, and the topic is the 90s series. Well, obviously, you should make Orbit's uh, ice cream because <laughs> that's the most 90s. Uh, we should have a food court series, and Orbit's would be on it. <laughs> Orbit's and Clear Pepsi, and uh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I've already submitted my 90s ice cream, uh, sorry, 90s themed ice cream ideas to the Kind Ice Cream Instagram um and didn't oh. didn't receive any response. That was that was last year. Um oh, what were they? It was uh Did we talk or- about it? No, no, I don't think so. Oh, darn. It was Orbits, um uh McDonald's pizza. And- <laughs> oh my god, that's such a good one. <laughs> and- <laughs> And I think there is nothing more nineties than McDonald's pizza. <laughs> and I think my last, uh, my last suggestion was Gak, Gak flavored ice cream, but Gak, what's Gak? <laughs> You're too old. <laughs> Gak was like a, a, like really, um, a really crazy, um, intense version of Play-Doh that existed in the nineties. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> and did it have flavors? <laughs> oh, you didn't eat it. You shouldn't eat it. Right. It was a joke. <laughs> okay. It was mostly a joke. Um Yeah. Anyways, okay. Should we move? I don't know what other food was popular in the nineties. Like Well, again, it's kind of like a generational like yeah, I know what was popular in the nineties, but I was ten years old in the nineties, so like I Right. To me what was popular in the nineties was like <laughs> Smoking like cigarettes the behind the and, <laughs> and Mar- Mario Batali and yeah. like giant sprigs of rosemary sticking. Oh, oh. maybe for next year for the '90s series, we can have a giant sprig of rosemary sticking out of all of our ice cream cones. <laughs> that would that'd be very '90s. I do like I immediately think of yeah lunch like like Lunchables. I think about Lunchables and Gushers. Oh, Lunchables would be a good one. I think no, it'd be a terrible. Are you joking? That's a terrible ice cream idea. I mean, it's a good no, 90s really good. idea. You put the crackers. <laughs> the little cubes of ham and orange cheddar. Ham. Um, gushers. You can make it look like ham and cheddar, but like have it be like different kinds of sprinkles or something. Be genius. Fruit by the Gushers foot. is really hard. We actually have talked several times about trying to have a Gushers flavor for the 90s series, but <laughs> it's like how it just doesn't work. doesn't like, work when you know, it's frozen, How can right? you do that? Well, yeah, like they're not going to be good frozen. So you can't actually put Gushers in it. Not to mention the fact that, can you even get Gushers? I have no idea. They still exist, Alan? I don't know. Well, honestly, I had the same question about Dunkaroos. uh, That's a very good, yeah. Uh, Gushers still exist, yeah. One weird thing that just can't, I I feel like it can't exist anymore, but like we would get... um, kind of like gushers like gummy candies in a little individual packet but they were all shaped like different um military airplanes i can't remember what they were called okay but there was like one that was an f-19 and one that was a b2 bomber and seriously yeah for real yeah 
Never heard of it. I don't know if it was like because like we were the Gulf, the second Gulf War had, or sorry, the first Gulf War had just happened. <laughs> I don't know what, it, I'm not joking. Like this was a snack that yeah, I no, ate. I, like in the same vein as uh, So Delicious and Gushers and all that, it was like an individual right. pack of gummy candies, but they were all shaped like different um, military aircraft. Yeah. Wow. I would like Can't someone to it. write in and corroborate that I'm not just... Please, yeah. somebody write in and send me a link to the military aircraft. And you don't want remember what they were called? Did they have, like, were they like Gushers, like they had juice inside or what? No, I don't think so. I think they were just... Oh, okay. Yeah. They were just gummy candies. Yeah. Well, gummy fruit snacks for your lunch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a big difference between gummy fruit snacks and gummy candies, Alan. Texturally, I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, texturally, I'm barely right. And nutritionally, <laughs> there's no way I'm right. <laughs> okay. Let's move on. Let's move on. You want me to bring the next topic as well? Yes. Okay. Shale's podcast. I'm in charge of this one. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not really sure which one, where to go next. Um, well, here's a dumb topic that maybe we can just spend five minutes on that I haven't <laughs> given any thought to, but okay. is actually on our topic list and is somewhat related. Okay. What would you serve in a Michelin starred ice cream shop? <laughs> this is now the ice cream <laughs> so, episode. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out that um yeah the michelin guide is coming to canada mm-hmm. starting out in toronto i guess we already talked about that in the last episode right yeah yeah um and yeah i made a joke about uh, making a bid for a michelin star for our ice cream shop mm-hmm. so i guess i'm on the hook for some <laughs> creative ideas yes Okay, let's see. What's actually good? Okay, <laughs> here's where I'd start. Wild fruits, right? That's a good idea. Mm. Wild fruits, wild strawberries. Like, if you could legitimately pick enough, like, wild strawberries to make, like, a, like, you know, maybe, like, a basically or maybe like a pretty basic strawberry ice cream, but you just used wild strawberries to make it. Mm -hmm. I think it could be incredible. And I think that that goes for a lot of wild fruits. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, like (laughs) it's a lot of foraging, especially for the amount of ice cream that we make. But, um, and would strawberries be your first, your, the first wild fruit that you'd be going after? I mean, for me, yes. Like, strawberry i don't know there's something so simple and satisfying about strawberry ice cream i think our strawberry ice cream is like our is my favorite flavor that we have Mm -hmm. and it's basically just straight ahead strawberry ice cream like it's the the custard base is flavored with strawberry puree that we make Mm in-house but like from um not wild strawberries obviously Mm -hmm. um frozen strawberries and then we also put a swirl of like strawberry compote in it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's basically just like straight ahead strawberry ice cream. And I don't know, I just love it so much. And I think that if you could elevate that and, you know, make it 
additionally surprising like in terms of the amount of strawberry flavor that you could get out of it i think that that could be like something that's like so um nostalgic but at the same time surprising in terms of its flavor like if you could really boost the flavor by having wild strawberries i think that that would really like i don't know it's those simple nostalgia things that i associate with like some of the best like high-end dining experiences that i've had mm-hmm. like the simple things that just like remind you of something amazing mm-hmm. um so yeah that's where i'd start wild fruits i mean you know like a, a lot of things spring to mind like you know like making chocolate ice cream with like really amazing chocolate or like having the best chocolate shavings or something or like you know making your own chocolate and then turning that into like a really amazing chocolate ice cream or something like that um but yeah like i i got a i got plenty of joke ideas you know like (laughs) covering the entire uh outside of the scoop of ice cream with gold foil and, you know and, and <laughs> yeah and weird dumb stuff like that or you know like making or or like modernist stuff where you're like you know making a scoop of ice cream that looks like it's made out of caviar but then when you bite into it it's actually like a you know like <laughs> really amazing like um uh caviar flavored ice cream no. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> god can you imagine that would be so horrible um was i was thinking like cream. passion fruit because mm-hmm. like you know passion fruits kind of look like the pieces of the fruit in passion fruit kind of look like a little egg so then you can make like do right. a play on that doing some kind of modernist technique where you make some like passion fruit pearls or something like that mm-hmm. i don't know lots of dumb joke ideas but like i think to really do it the real idea is to try and like just distill the flavor yeah. of the dairy and the fruit or the inclusion and just have it be like so prominent that it just like rushes over you and like mm-hmm. creates this super nostalgic experience that's that's where i'd be going with it i think i think the wild fruit idea like there's lots lots to explore there where we live like i i know you guys have done a bit of it already at kind like you had the, the i can't remember the name of it but you had that one that featured hascaps it wasn't exclusively hascap but it 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 featured um alberta grown hascaps i think right yeah that's um, right but there's and actually of- we're going to be running that one again soon oh is there right? cool yeah um, oh, well actually like this episode comes out in june mm-hmm. is that correct yes yeah this episode comes out on june 1st so yeah Today, if you go to our Ritchie shop, um, and it's only available at the Ritchie shop because it's a collaboration with the Ritchie Community League, but mm-hmm. we are uh, running our Hascap dairy ice cream mm-hmm. um, for the month of June at the Ritchie shop. Cool. But like yeah. the like sea buckthorn, I think would make an amazing mm-hmm. ice cream. The set local sour cherries would make an amazing sorbet or sherbet. Yeah, totally. I yeah, I would love to do and we've kind of talked about it. And I don't know if it's still on the roster for this year or not or what's happening. But we have definitely talked about doing like a harvest series, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, like. a Man, my memory is so bad. I think we ran like a peach cobbler flavor at some point. Oh, is there? Yeah. 
And I think that that was part of like the idea of doing a harvest series or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I, yeah. When I, when I hear too many ice creams, (laughs) when we made the joke of a Michelin starred ice cream store, um, the first Mm -hmm. thing that came to my mind was in the 11 Madison park cookbook, there's a dish (laughs) that is potato ice cream with oh, that, wow. that's served with ocetra caviar and i think a right. potato yeah. crisp um that's where my mind goes when you say michelin starred ice cream shop yeah totally mine too to some extent right like yeah weird experiences but like high-end mm-hmm. you know food experiences mm-hmm. man alan that is just such a great segue though <laughs> <laughs> to what uh, because we also have on our list of topics um, to talk about uh, the episode of the Rich Roll podcast. Um, Sorry, the Rick Roll kind of... pro- podcast, you say? <laughs> <laughs> Alan Rick rolled me bad before we got. <laughs> it was the first time someone had before been Rick we got on the call in 15 years, but it works. <laughs> Man, it worked so well. And. I was not expecting that at all. Alan sent me an email <laughs> that had something like, how about this for a topic idea? Ugh, never clicking on a link from you ever again. Al. <laughs> Anyways, anyway, the, the um, joke is that I Rick rolled you, but we wanted to talk about um, an episode of the Rich Roll podcast, which I, I had mm-hmm. not, had you heard of that before? Um, our No. Okay. Um, not at all. So um, it was uh, sent to us by listener David, friend of the show, David, um, after we had uh, talked about um, 11 Madison Park, he sent it to us um, because in the episode where we talked uh, a lot about uh, the menu and the the like uh, food of 11 Madison Park. Do you remember what the episode was called, Alan? Mm, Old Dog, New Tricks. Oh yeah. Old dog, new tricks. Yeah. In that episode, we had just like sort of peripherally talked about, um, how 11 Madison park had recently, um, gone vegan. Um, but I didn't know too much. In fact, I, that when we talked about it on the podcast, that was the first that I'd heard that that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, listener David, uh, sent us a link to an episode of a podcast called the rich roll podcast um where um the host interviews daniel whom about that specifically mm-hmm. um and yeah do you know the host's name i can't remember well the host is rich roll is it not oh his last name is roll yeah okay well, so and sense. this is to um right right from his website so rich roll is a uh quote vegan ultra endurance athlete and full-time wellness and plant-based nutrition advocate. Um, so I, I haven't listened to any of the other episodes of his podcast, but the, the, the core of his content is, is about, um, plant-based nutrition, plant-based nutrition. And and also like, because he is, uh, an athlete, um, like a lot of kind of, uh, I don't know what the right, language to use but like kind of like um goal orientation and um other kind of like purpose driven um i don't know what i don't know (laughs) um yeah uh like 
self-motivation and yeah totally yeah yeah, like yeah. Yep, yeah that's right yeah um but yeah he had a um a great uh episode with daniel whom um which we i think there was just some we won't like give a <laughs> there's no point in us giving a, a like synopsis of it or whatever but um some really great ideas came to the fore and especially for me because i knew about the um 11 madison parks change to um a plant-based menu basically right from the beginning but it was all kind of through social media and especially instagram and so i saw it and i was like oh that's interesting and but i i kind of formed my own opinions on what what it meant and why they might be doing it and all that but it, it was really great right. to hear a like a, a long form discussion with whom and hear the entire process and it it really actually it did change my opinion of that um of the 11 madison park menu like i even though i thought it was right interesting and and bold and brave and whatever else like in the back of my mind when i saw it on social media i was like oh well i mean that's just they're just kind of it's a gimmick it's a stunt kind of like it's not really gonna they say it's about sustainability or whatever but it's not really gonna change that much about the world that we live in um but to hear where whom was coming from and to hear about the 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 evolution of the project and and how he really does see it as this he's done lots for like to address issues of food security in in different parts of new york but like basically the menu the the plant-based menu at 11 madison park is above all else it's a creative endeavor like it's a he saw it as a creative challenge um right that resonated with him and so anyways it's a great conversation um yeah i think when you brought it up like in my mind my sort of like immediate reaction or my like first impression slash supposition was that yeah that like daniel whom was like bored yes <laughs> and needed it needed a creative challenge and was just like i'm just gonna make the whole menu vegan and like i think to a certain extent or like you know he, he doesn't really shy away from that aspect of it mm -hmm. when talking about it on the podcast like there was definitely part like that that was definitely part of his thought process i think about it but like yeah there is a much more holistic decision making process behind the scenes in terms of what you know drove him to actually make that decision mm -hmm. actually make that happen and a large part of it was yeah like um food security and um doing something with the restaurant to be more what's the word like active or active like in the activist sense mm -hmm. in terms of improving a situation for food security so along with changing the menu um to being fully plant-based they also rolled out this like crazy um meal production program wherein like during parts of the pandemic, I don't know if this is still a everyday thing now that the restaurant is open again and serving um, their plant-based menu every day. But like at certain points during the pandemic, when the restaurant 
wasn't able to be open, they were producing like 5,000 meals a day for mm -hmm. people who were experiencing um, food insecurity, mm -hmm. um, which is pretty crazy. Like I, like they talk about in the podcast how that's not really even making a dent, mm -hmm. but it's still like a lot, you know, like it's still a ton of food, you know, like they're saying that like they're actually like, potentially up to a million people in new york city who you know ha, ha, who maybe not ongoing but like especially during different parts of the pandemic we're facing food insecurity like so five thousand next to a million is like you know several orders of magnitude shy of like you know really doing something about the problem but mm -hmm. you know it's still five thousand meals that people wouldn't have eaten otherwise right and and as far as I understand, it, it is still part of what they're doing, even now that the restaurant is fully open, because they talk about how right. for every, I think he said that they feed about 100 people a night at 11 Madison Park, and each of those covers um, pays for five meals that are given away um, in food insecure neighborhoods. So every day they're, right. they're giving away 500 meals as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also like, pr like prior to like part of the impetus for that whole thing was like that prior to the pandemic, a cook who had worked at 11 Madison Park had kind of, I guess, become somewhat disillusioned with like feeding like high end food to like very select few people who could afford it. And sort of like went off and with the help and the blessing of Daniel Hume started a, I guess, a charity to try and reclaim um, food from restaurants to turn it into meals to give to people. Right. Food waste um, or, or leftovers. It was called Rethink, right? Yeah. And so that's sort of like actively ongoing as well. And they're using that program to try and help restaurants find a sustainable way to like donate their food waste mm -hmm. um, to the program. So like one of the problems with like giving away food waste is that to some extent, you know, like anything that like, so like, you know, everyone's favorite example is like broccoli stems, right? Right. And they mentioned that in the podcast. Yeah. 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 <laughs> broccoli comes on a stem, but you know, in most restaurants, you serve the crowns and don't serve the stem and the stem doesn't become anything. But if you want the stem to become something, you have to actually, you know, it's like way easier and costs you way less in labor to just throw it in a compost or throw it in garbage. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, if you want to feed somebody with the broccoli stems, you have to process them in some way. And that takes time and equipment and money. And so part of the part of the program for rethink is like finding ways for restaurants to be able to donate um, that food waste without taking a hit on labor or without taking a hit on uh, food cost and stuff like that, mm -hmm. which I think is interesting. They don't really go into specifics of how that works. And that yeah. when they were talking about that on the podcast, I was like really interested um, to find out more details of kind of like what they're, you know, what they're doing in that vein to try and make that um, more sustainable for restaurants. Mm -hmm. um, but they didn't really go down that path, but that, that really, I'm, I'm super curious about that. And I think that if I had the opportunity to, um, 
to go to rethink, that would be like sort of the top of my list of questions would be mm -hmm. like, you know, what is it that, that you can do to help reduce the labor cost of reserving waste food and stuff like that? Right. But, yeah. The, um, it's funny. <laughs> I don't know if you remember. So, um, yes, they, they specifically talk about in, in this podcast, uh, whom says like, yeah, for broccoli, like we use the florets and then the rest we don't use. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you remember, but in, when I was picking your brain about your time at Noma, I was really interested uh -huh. in, in waste items or trim items and waste items. And I was like, is it really like in a, even though it's a high end restaurant and one of the best restaurants in the world, how, how concerned are they with food waste and, and usable trim and things like that? And you said at right. Noma, it's a, extreme like it's part of the culture it's like you you use that up mm -hmm. just to get find a way to get the flavor back on the plate um right and and i said well that's interesting because i'm reading the 11 madison park cookbook right now and there's all kinds of references to like you know uh or they'll say you know poach an egg and then discard the whites <laughs> kind of thing <laughs> and then it, right and i remember kind of being surprised by that honestly yeah. at the time because to me I guess like a lot of the contemporary cooks that are working at 11 Madison Park, I feel like came up in this sort of same like tight knit kind of group of like high end fine dining chefs. Mm -hmm. And like, we're all, you know, they're kind of like all trained by the same people or go through the same set of restaurants to do their like stages and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah. And I know that like, well, it, also, like if you look at a restaurant like Favakin or something like that, you know, like that's like incorporating trim and food waste back into the menu is like similar, I think, to how it was at Noma where like, I mean, there were definitely some things that got discarded mm -hmm. at Noma, but like it was kind of like a constant reassessment of the state of things when it came to discarding food trim and stuff like that like every week like you know it was somebody's job to like try to reassess a different way to use a different piece of food trim that we were maybe discarding or something like that mm -hmm. and uh so yeah i was kind of i was kind of like surprised to hear that um coming out of the 11 madison park cookbook but i also in in some way i feel was like I, I was kind of like disbelieving of it. Mm -hmm. Like it seemed to me that probably behind the scenes, like, you know, in the book, they tell you to discard stuff because it's just easier than telling you, well, reserve this for this other dish that right. you're going to make that we also have on our menu or something like that. Like it just, it gets complicated, especially if like yeah. most people are looking at your cookbook to prepare one dish or two dishes or something to tell them, you know, which dish they like reserve the trim from that thing to, right. you know, yeah. to create a stock to boil something. And it just gets very, I don't know, it gets very complicated very quickly once you start to try and d like tease all all of those little details out. And so I, I, I think in the back of my mind, I was like, yeah, they're probably doing it. They're just not saying it, right. you know, like as much. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's probably the case, but I, yeah, I, I wonder now too, because it seems like Daniel Hume had a pretty visceral reaction to the amount of food waste that they had and the amount of food waste that they were generating. And yeah, like definitely called out like the idea of like only using a very 
specific part of a vegetable or a very specific part of a piece of food and and like discarding the rest of it so mm-hmm. i don't know like yeah maybe maybe they weren't doing as much of that as i would have assumed that they were and you know i think now they're uh, like or at the very least they're now using um all of their food trim to try and um make people make uh, meals for people who don't have access to them so mm-hmm. It does seem like in some ways, um, like I don't, I don't even think that they post the the menu for Eleven Madison Park anymore, um, like on their website or anything. Oh yeah. Um, and I so I don't know what it is, and I don't, and I obviously haven't eaten it. But listening to whom and others talk about the food there now, it almost seems like in a roundabout way they've come much closer to the new Nordic um, ideas. Like not from mm-hmm. not from this almost like they're they've ended up in the center of the same mountain, but like like digging from opposite directions, kind of. But like one of right. one of the things that was really interesting, like having been steeped in the the Noma and Favakin kind of um, literature that's been released over the last couple of decades, like they were so into, for instance, like fermentation, right? Like fermenting things in house to develop flavor, right? And that was something that was like you didn't see any of that like not as i can't having read it cover to cover i can't think of a single example of in-house fermentation from the first 11 madison park cookbook but now that they're working right. with vegetables that's something that who explicitly talks about in their ritual podcast is that like yeah the flavors that they can tease out of vegetables through fermentation so that was really interesting to me that like it they end up in a in a place much closer to the new nordic stuff but coming at it from a completely different, not just doing it because, because Red Zeppi published the, the the fermentation guide or whatever, but just like no, from a completely different, uh, yeah. It's interesting though, because like, I think that like, I, I don't know, it's, it's weird because like, you know, oh God, <laughs> this is like a long convoluted um, idea that I'm uh, about to try to um, birth. <laughs> vocalize but like i'll try to stay on track and i'll try and i'll try and do it in a way that's coherent but like the there's like an idea about the propagation of food ideas especially amongst like high-end restaurants wherein like the the published works like cookbooks, et cetera, cookbooks and blog posts and even social media posts and stuff become sort of like the context for who developed what ideas and who came up with what, when, and who influenced who and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And in reality, it, it like and and the reason why that becomes the default um for trying to sort of like track those ideas is because it is recorded it's trackable. and <laughs> it's specific and it's trackable mm-hmm. exactly but then you know i think the reality is that the ideas start to percolate in a more general sense within the group of people that are working in those restaurants and it is like a kind of 
tight knit community where a lot of people know each other and a lot of people travel from a lot of different countries to work in different restaurants that are, you know, like that, that seem to be like fresh beds of creativity and people want to be exposed to that. And there's a lot of cross pollination between these chefs who are like obsessed with specific types of flavors and want to learn as much as they can. And these, and, and so like, you know, they go and work in a restaurant for a year and then they go back to where they came from. And, yeah. and a lot of people who have worked in like, maybe, you know, like who worked at El Bulli, maybe then like moved on to work in other European restaurants or like maybe people from the States, like, um, decided to go and stage in El Bulli or Noma or um, Osteria Francescana or, you know, like, mm -hmm. yeah. and, and then bring some ideas back. And they're like, oh, we did this thing in this other restaurant. And, and, the, and the chefs of those restaurants, I'm sure some of them have, you know, good relationships with each other. Maybe some of them hate each other or something, but they all kind of know each other mm. to some extent. And a lot of them have eaten in each other's restaurants and things like that. And, yeah. and they're all kind of like, constantly sort of educating themselves in what is happening in that in that kind of like high-end food scene mm -hmm. um, because they are all kind of obsessed with yeah. like finding new ideas and creative ideas and new flavors and new ways to bring interesting experiences into their restaurants and and so like you know the, as much as you can point to the published part of it as sort of like the history as a chronicle of like where the ideas came from. Really those ideas are constantly cross pollinating. Like Noma, I think has become famous for that fermentation idea that you were talking about. Mm. Um, and definitely they had been dabbling in it for a long time, but it only really took off and only really became like a big part of what they were offering on their menu. Um, and only really became a big, like really, um, integrated part of what their offering is and kind of what they are now famous for when a chef from New York came and worked there who was like super into fermentation. Mm -hmm. Oh, what is his name? Do you remember his name? Uh, no, I don't know his name. Is he, is he actually, I don't know. Sorry. Uh, David Zilber. Oh, okay. Um, so I, I don't know the whole story and he wasn't there when I was there. Um, but this, from what I understand, he came from New York. He was obsessed with like this fermentation thing. I don't know if he went there just as a stagiaire initially um, and then started working there or what happened or whether he went there and got hired specifically because he had all of this knowledge about the fermentation and mm -hmm. Renee wanted to sort of like bring him on to help spearhead the fermentation program. But he basically like built their fermentation program. Is that right? Yeah. And so, yeah. And, and so kind of that idea, like maybe not the, maybe not, maybe not the kernel of like the idea of like, Oh, fermentation can really bring something unique to our menu, but like a lot of the actual like practical side of it was imported, mm -hmm. you know? And then, and and so like i think then that really points to uh you know the idea that a, a lot of those like for a lot of the 11 madison park fermentation ideas now are also cross-pollinated in a similar way right you know and it's just sort of like these things that bubble up in that food culture and then just sort of like propagate out and mm -hmm. and um you know like it's it's funny to to talk about like someone actually like 
inventing it and then someone seeing it. And like, I, I think it's interesting too, how you were saying like, they're kind of like, you know, digging a tunnel from, from different sides of the mountain and meeting in the middle. I, I think that's partially true, but it's also like, it's also kind of like maybe there was some gnomes in the mountain burrowing out <laughs> from both directions or something. You're convoluting you know, like, my metaphor. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, I just destroyed your metaphor. But but like, do you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. it's not. It's also not just like that Daniel Hume had this great idea because he had to get more flavor out of vegetables, you know, like mm -hmm. it's also, you know, like when he came to the idea that he wanted to have a, um, have a plant-based menu, there's also this like, you know, uh, really crazy ongoing renaissance of like all these fermentation techniques mm -hmm. and like ancient fermentation techniques that, you know, like, um, that ha people haven't really been exposed to. And like some of them, like some of the stuff is like really niche and hasn't really been around for centuries. And it's kind of been revitalized mm -hmm. from like, you know, a weird historical texts and stuff right. like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think like what you're describing is probably true at the, the high end of almost any, endeavor right where like we it, it's <laughs> it gets written in the history books as you know like newton invented calculus or something but like really <laughs> right, at, right. at that time like it, like you said the, the idea was kind of percolating in the mathematical community all over europe and so there were people yeah. in on the continent who are who are doing very similar and things. both newton um, and leibniz yeah, kind exactly, of had their yeah. fingers on it and like yeah, yeah. And then it just happened yeah, that no, Newton exactly. was the president of the Royal Academy or the Royal Society that determined who actually invented it. But anyways, whose public published work became <laughs> more popular exactly, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. But so to uh, actually, I wanted to throw something at you. Okay. I, Cause I feel like just the, the whom interview on the ritual podcast, we could talk about for ages, but I wanted to focus it in one particular direction before we move on to the other um, potpourri items. Um, there, okay. there's a lot in that, uh, because, um, ritual comes from that, um, like he himself is vegan and, and very much a, a kind of ideologue, uh, for plant-based eating. Um, mm -hmm. he, he, in the, in the conversation, in the interview, he really does a lot to hold whom up as a, um, a trailblazer and an influencer and someone who is really going to really push people um, into, well, well, to expose them to new ideas and, and to bring plant-based eating to a, um, a, a huge amount of people. Right. You agree with that? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So I want to, I want to share, yep. uh, I'm going to read something to you and it's a quote from a very different um, interview. Um, okay, cool. Okay, so this is a, a this is a nice surprise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this is a chef, one of one of my favorite chefs, actually, and this is uh, something he said in an interview. <clears throat> Quote: <laughs> I hope it's not Anthony Bourdain. It's not Bourdain, no. <laughs> um, okay. It's Bourdain adjacent. Uh, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> Bourdain, Bourdain legendarily. <laughs> no, um, no, not Bourdain. Um, does not does not associate with vegans. <laughs> Quote. Cooks are always trying to be involved in things much higher than they are. They're always politicizing their trade 
like every chef is an effing Mother Teresa. They all want to change the world, but people don't follow us. They take their food adages from mass media. R. Kelly is more important to the food world than any great chef. Kim Kardashian, Justin Bieber has 16 million followers on Twitter. If the most famous chefs in the world tried to hold a press conference to change one little thing about the way people eat, there would maybe be a minute change. But if Justin Bieber tweets, hey guys, try this salad, it's super cool, that's my new thing, you'll have 7 million people the next morning eating one salad a day. End quote. What do you think of that? <laughs> what do you think of that? Um, that perspective um compared to uh whom and specifically how he's portrayed on the ritual podcast okay well first before we get into that shout out to dunkaroos official (laughs) 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 um yeah i let me think i mean Clearly, there is some truth to that. It seems a little bit cynical to me, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I am a chef. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess like I can see uh, like the point makes sense, but like that's the truth about like you can say that about anything. You know, like that's the truth about everything Mm -hmm. is that influencers and famous people and, you know, everything that is in the mainstream media, um, you know, clearly has the, like the ear of the mainstream public and clearly is the most accessible place for people to get their ideas about <clears throat> about how they want to build their lifestyles mm-hmm. you know but i do also think that like like there's something important about people who are um pushing the corners of what is of what is acceptable conceptually in terms of expression. Mm -hmm. So like whatever form of art that might be or whatever, like maybe not even art, but like maybe not even just art. Um, But like, I don't know, like everything cultural that people are exposed to. There are always, you know, there are always people working in that cultural medium who are, you know, like pushing the boundaries of like what people conceptualize as being being the mainstream. And then eventually, in a lot of cases, ideas that may seem, you know, like they're fringe ideas or their beliefs that are only held by, you know, like um, some upper echelon of people who are working in a specific medium or something like that eventually those things trickle down Mm -hmm. those ideas gain acceptability through things like you know influencers like who's to say that justin bieber won't eat at 11 madison park and become a vegan right yeah right like that's not part of daniel whom's plan i don't know justin bieber isn't out there inventing that salad 
Somebody right. invented the salad that Justin Bieber says, hey, guys, you should try this salad that I had or whatever. You know, right. like somebody had to make that salad. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't make the chef who made it an influencer, but it also doesn't make his contribution worthless. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Right. Is Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. But I almost wonder, like, if it's to to call back to our um, talking about the insular nature of independent um, food service operations in Edmonton. Right. Like, I almost wonder if it's maybe the same kind of thing with um, 11 Madison Park. Like, obviously, <laughs> much is a very high repute and very uh, widely regarded. It was named the best restaurant in the world and has three Michelin stars and blah, blah, blah. But if like this change to plant-based, if it really only um, was shocking or provocative to the people who are already aware of it and already involved in that community. Mm -hmm. Do do you know what I mean? Like, and so to say that like, it's really um, groundbreaking and going to change things if, if that's right. overblown that, and that, sorry. And I, I don't, I, I, I'm still, I still, I, it's such a fantastic story and there's so many ideas involved. I love the conversation between whom and, and ritual. Um, but I, I just, cause this, this quote that I read to you in particular was always something that I was like, Oh yeah. Like this is kind of like, let's not get too involved in the hype. Like at the end of the day, we're cooking food for people that, uh, this this is a quote that really grounded me over um over the last few years anyways um right so anyways who's uh, the quote from alan uh it's fred moran from joe beef being interviewed in okay. in lucky peach uh circa right. 2016 okay. yeah i mean i definitely think that there's some truth to it but i also think that like like i don't get the sense from like, for instance, I don't get the sense from Daniel Hume in his conversation with Rich Roll about his decision or whatever. Like, I don't get the sense from that conversation that Daniel Hume thinks that he's making a bigger difference than he is. No, absolutely not. You know, he's like, extre- I, I, he's I very get grounded. This- like, it's very. Right. It's, yeah. And, yeah. You know, like, in the important part of the like change that he's making. You know, like he he's saying like he thinks it's good that that like, you know, he can he you know, like he thinks that it's encouraging that the restaurant can still be like, you know, extremely busy and extremely popular and still like, you know, charge the the prices that they were having and, you know, like and 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 still exist and just make a change like that and have people like accept it, Mm -hmm. which I think is interesting, but like, he's, you know, that's not the thing to him really. That's necessarily all that interesting. Like the bigger part of it is like, you know, kind of reassessing what can a restaurant provide to not just its diners, but then also to, you know, uh, to help with the problem of, food security or, or, mm-hmm. you know, like how can you sort of like reassess the role of the restaurant 
to try and make an actual contribution to that problem. Not just like it's, it's not virtue signaling, mm-hmm. you know, like it's yep. not just like, look what we're doing. Yep. It's like, how can we actually do something? And I think like that, you know, like that type of mentality is like the opposite of what the quote is sort of like um, pointing to is that, you know, like chefs think that, you know, like, Oh, they can change food by, being an influencer or something like that. Right. I think that there probably are some chefs that have that kind of, um, maybe that there are some chefs who have that kind of mindset, but it's kind of like, honestly, it's a little bit hard to have that mindset when what you're mainly doing is providing an experience for a whole group of different people that you probably don't know and will probably never see again every night, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like it's, I don't know. It, it doesn't really, I, I like, I think what the quote is probably making reference to is like celebrity chefs and how like chefs are kind of like held up in the same sort of light as celebrities are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's a thing um, that exists. But, you know, like I think in a lot of cases, celebrity chefs aren't necessarily really chefs. They're more influencers than they are actual chefs. And then, you know, like in a lot of cases, chefs who are, you know, doing things that are like in the vein of what Daniel Hume is doing are doing them for very grounded reasons because they're seeing in front of them every day, like the effect of the food that they're serving to people mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So yeah, it seems, seems a little cynical, but then I also do think that like celebrity chef culture is a little weird. But. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But then it's weird too, because like there are some aspects of celebrity chef culture that I think are pretty, uh, um, what's the word? Uh, awesome. <laughs> no, um, authentic. Yeah. There are some aspects of celebrity chef culture that I think are, uh, are more authentic than a lot of other celebrity culture. Okay. Like when you look at something like, um, I think we were talking about this on the last episode, but like when you look at something like top chef, I mean, mm. you know, it's, you know, clearly it's a reality TV show and that's like reality TV can be some of the most bottom of the barrel type of lowest common denominator experiences. But someone at some point realized that like it was better for their viewership if they brought on people who were actually passionate about food and people who were really interested in it and people who wanted to do a really good job and not just like cause drama (laughs) and stuff like that. Mm. And, you know, like I'm sure they still try to balance it with a little bit of drama and, you know, like it's still a reality TV show. And honestly, I haven't really watched it in the last five years. I don't know where it's at right now, but, but, you know, like there is something that resonates and I think, uh, like in like in actual authentic like passion about food and and I think that the reason why that is the way that it is is because food is a very universal experience mm-hmm. you know like in a similar way to like I don't know I don't know if you feel this way but like to me 
um, music is also a very universal experience. Like regardless of like what genre of music you like or something like that, like music is just something that like really viscerally connects on some kind of like, you know, some, some kind of like very truthful level. And I think food is similar because so many people have so much exposure to it, you know, effortless exposure to Mm -hmm. it. Like everyone has to eat, Mm -hmm. um, in a way that like, at least for me, like something like, um, like painting or some other, like some other forms of art, like I can appreciate them, but they don't really seem to me to have as much universal, like visceral effect for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That last bit was kind of a weird tangent, but no, it may like, I mean, obviously you're right that uh, it's funny, like food, even though we've done, we've done a lot of work on this podcast to downplay the idea of, um, chef as artist (laughs) and, but, but like, as a, if you consider, um, food or dining or cuisine as an art form, which you should in some cases, Mm -hmm. um, it's, it, it must be the most universally understood art form <laughs> like because even i think you actually maybe right. did yourself a disservice in comparing it to music like because obviously food is much more like food is much more um much more of a, a shared and natural experience than than music right um but yeah, no music has like another level of i guess like uh, yeah like it requires an additional level of sort of metaphor or, or, or people people interact with it in a in very many different ways compared to you know the fact that basically yeah. everybody not everybody but basically everybody on the planet eats every day um and so yeah you're right like that that's what, what makes it a very powerful if you want to consider it an art form a very powerful art form um yeah and even if you don't consider it an art form like just to call it a cultural an aspect of culture or a cultural experience. Like, I think that that's, you know, yeah, it's a cultural experience that exists everywhere for all people. So Mm -hmm. it is like extremely universal in that way. Yeah. And I think that's why it requires some authenticity in order for it to resonate, you know, Mm -hmm. like, cause I don't know. I just feel like, I mean, maybe I'm totally wrong because like, Oh, I don't know. Even fast food, like there's something there, right? Like there's like, I don't know. Uh, That's tricky. Cause like, I think, you know, like the cynical take on fast food is that it's designed to be addictive, you know, Mm -hmm. like that it's like designed to want you to continue to crave it all the time and not really want to eat anything else. And I, I don't know, there's probably some truth to that take. It would, you know, like, um, part of me thinks that it's like conspiracy theory and another part of me thinks that it's like probably true in some cases, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's like, I don't, maybe I don't really know where I was going with that. I, but how does it relate to culture? Right. Like, you know, like in terms of universality, there are, you know, like, I guess there are probably a lot more people, and especially like in North America, who like most of their food consumption is like 
convenience food or fast food or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of a manufactured culture, you know, much more so than it is in other parts of the world. But like, if that's just what you're used to eating, that's not really going through your head when you're eating it, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and if you grew up in rural China and you, and most of what you eat is like the eggs that you get from your chicken every day or something like that, then that's just what you have as your cultural experience as it relates to food. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I think that people that grow up in North America with exposure to fast food, like it's not, you know, like it just is a part of how they experience food growing up, yep. you know? And, and then, so there's like a, a line that can be drawn there, you know, like if, if you take the cynical view of, of, profiteering and fast food out of it it is just people's food experience you know? yeah yeah and, which is like relatable across culture i think mm. i don't know we're out of our depth alan. <laughs> as alan would say i'm out of my depth <laughs> um do you want to abruptly leave the daniel whom ritual conversation and Cause I know there's a lot. I, I just want to, I just want to drive by. <laughs> I, I don't know if this is wise or not, but I kind of also just want to drive by um, like one of the observations that I had while listening to the podcast that I thought was kind of interesting. And I'm not like saying this to like call out um, rich role necessarily, or to call out, you know, people who are passionate about plant-based eating. But one thing that kind of stuck out for me a little bit was that like, obviously Rich Roll was like pretty impressed that, you know, a chef who has, you know, what has, you know, been, been um, uh, considered the best restaurant in the world would just up and change his menu to plant-based. And I feel like, um, you know, being an advocate for plant-based eating, I'm sure that Rich Roll found that very validating and seemed like he was really excited to be able to interview Daniel Hume and have him on the podcast. And they, they really do get into um, some deep areas of conversation about Daniel, Daniel Holmes, like thought process and stuff, mm -hmm. but there's like a couple moments in the podcast and one in particular where like rich couldn't really help himself, <laughs> but to like sort of shame Daniel Hume for not being strictly vegan yes. currently. Yeah. Um, which I found, I don't know, like, I don't want to say it's like, bad but i found it interesting like that's sort of my experience to some extent with the like when you talk about like um you know like self-motivation and self-actualization self-actualization and you know um people who uh, who are like very passionate about their lifestyle not only vegans but like it applies to a lot of people um in you know like in different sort of lifestyle niches like that um I just find it really interesting because like Daniel Hume kind of gives like he talks up front about how he's not strictly vegan. Mm -hmm. And I feel like he gives a pretty good reason <clears throat> for why he isn't strictly vegan. 
and uh, I, I don't know if he says this outright, but but it, um, he sort of alludes to the fact that his reason for not being strictly vegan is that he still has to be aware of like the entire breadth of like what's available in terms of food and food experiences. And, um, you know, like in order to be Daniel Hume, he has to not like shut out whole, um, like whole sectors of, you know, what's available in terms of, um, being able to understand like, what does meat bring to a dish versus mm. vegetable? Can you can you design a vegetable dish that brings that type of satisfaction? Do you want to do that? Like all of those things are are things that I feel like Daniel Hume has to still be able to consider in order to, um, you know, like do what he does. Right. And and while he's kind of like giving that, or while while he's kind of alluding to that being the reason why he isn't strictly vegan and may not actually be like, he does say that he's like, you know, reducing the amount of meat that he has in his diet and stuff like that. But rich kind of like, can't really help himself from being like, yeah, but you know, like when you do actually go vegan, cause I know that you will, because <laughs> that's where everybody's going, then you're going to feel better about yourself. Yeah. And like, it, it was, it, it was just a little bit, it was awkward for me. And I felt like it was a little bit awkward for whom. And like, it's just, I don't know, it's indicative of evangelism, but I oh, don't yeah, totally. really dig on too much. That's exactly what it was like. It, the funny thing is that, um, again, I haven't listened to any other, um, of the episodes, but like Rich Roll seemed like a, a genuinely a good interviewer. Like he he understood yeah. the arc of Hume's story from his childhood through to the present day, and like would offer kind of um, I don't know if analysis is the right word, but like he would yeah reinforce and elaborate on things that uh, Hume was offering up, and then all of a sudden <laughs> it would be it was honestly like like the cool pastor who like wants to know what's going on in your life, like wants to hear, yeah, give me all the, all of the details. But then like, once you say one thing, he's like, well, you know, those yeah, problems yeah. with your girlfriend would be resolved if you were married. Cause that would bring your relationship into a more perfect union. And it's like, what? That's not right. What <laughs> or if you had a stronger relationship with the Lord, yeah. then you wouldn't have so many personal problems or something yeah. like that. So yeah, those yeah, did yeah. ring. They, they rang very strange to me. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, I still really liked it and, and it kind of almost, you know, like he was doing it in kind of a, a jokey enough way that I don't know about that. that um, I, I mean, like he used straight but, up, but, I would yeah, say like, condescending language in some, like he, like, like he would say, oh yeah, well, you know, as you continue to evolve and grow, you'll see that blah, blah. And I was right, like, oh, yeah, yeah, give that's me true. a break. Oh, <laughs> that word evolve yeah, really, really, really gets under my skin and really got under my skin yeah. when I was listening to it. Um, but yeah, that's what, uh, that's what happens when you make ideology out of food. So right. You yeah, become a dick exactly. is what I'm saying. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I, that quote that you read to me, there's, I don't know, it's pretty, there's a lot, like it, there's a lot of subtlety in, in what he says in that quote. And like, you know, my take on it is just like one aspect of it. But yeah, like, I think that because he also does talk in that quote about, 
the ideology and pressing food too deep into ideology. And I think that that is like, I don't know, there's, there's definitely some truth to that in terms of some of the direction that, you know, chefs take and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. But, Mm -hmm. and that's not just not only from celebrity chefs. So, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe I discounted that part of it a little bit. It's hard. It's a long quote. It's hard to keep the whole thing in my head. Yeah. Sorry. You mean the Fred Moran quote? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The Fred Moran quote. Yeah. Sorry. If anyone's interested, it's, it's part of a, uh, an interview with Fred Moran and um, uh, Dave McMillan of Joe Beef. And the title of the article is The Art of Toilet Cleanliness. Um, totally. I've read the article. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I actually, yeah. I looked for it. I had it saved on my computer, <laughs> like copied and pasted off the internet. I couldn't find the full article online anymore. But um, if you uh, hmm. if you write into the show. I'm pretty sure I have a printed copy. Okay, yeah. You, you write into Food Court and we'll give you a, a copy of the full the full interview right i'll uh i'll take a picture of it with my phone. <laughs> okay. i'll mail it to you guys if you if someone wants to read it i'll mail it to you a printed copy holy smokes that's pretty good mailing that's remember that it's a lot of work you gotta go to the post office for that alan no you have to go to a post office box oh that's right you can just drop it in the box Okay, well. <laughs> Good night, just kidding. Okay, let's finish up with this short topic. <laughs> Although you may not have a whole lot to say about it. Politics. <laughs> What's the short topic? I don't know. I think it's kind of fitting. Um, I have a book report. Oh, yeah. Finally. So, a while ago, um, listener Nick uh, recommended a book um, on our Instagram. It's called Dirt, and uh, it's by Bill Buford, who was also the author of Heat, um, which is a book wherein the author, um, it's kind of like a three-section book, but I think one of the sections is about him working in Mario Batali's kitchen. Um, And then another section is about, I think it's about, Batali's story about working in Marco Pierre White's kitchen. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time since I read it. Um, and then and then I think the last section is about the author going to work in a butcher shop in Italy mm-hmm. and learning seam butchery from like an old school Italian butcher. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read that book like a long time ago near the beginning of my career. And then he has a book that came out more recently. I think it came out quite recently, like maybe 2020 or something like that. It's called Dirt. And it is a chronicle of um, of Bill Buford's, um, I guess, like journey to learn uh, about French food, how to cook it, and to some extent it's history or something like that. So, uh, as with most of the books that I read these days, I listen to it on audible. And, um, the first thing that I'll say, uh, is that while the content of the book, um, for the most part, I feel pretty positive about, uh, the book, the audio book on audible is read by the author. And, 
I don't know. Honestly, it was a little hard to listen to. His cadence is quite weird. And the way that, I don't know, like the way that um, he emphasizes words in the sentence and stuff is like, doesn't really feel very natural. doesn't hmm. flow very naturally. And so at some points it was like really hard to listen to. There, there were parts where I would just get into it and kind of forget about his cadence but like every time i picked it up to start listening to it again it took me like a good five minutes of being like holy can't he just talk like a normal guy <laughs> um <laughs> until i would sort of forget that i was listening to him and just kind of get lost in the in the story or mm -hmm. whatever but yeah it, it was uh definitely an interesting book with a lot of really interesting takes on food um and it and basically, it chronicles uh, Bill Buford's journey. Um, he, he decided that he wanted to learn what it takes to become a French chef, whatever that means. He's an American guy. Right. He um, French chefs, I guess, have some renown um, or like, I don't know what I I guess that's a thing, right? Like, yeah, there's a sense, I think, that they they have the kind of history and cultural baggage that they take it more seriously than or like that the, yeah they have right, a sense I, of uh, yeah. yeah cultural obligation to perform the role in a certain way if that makes sense i think like it, the, th the thing that i'm stumbling over a little bit is that like for me when i'm thinking about like you know the the sort of like mystique of the french restaurant as most people understand it in north america it's sort of like this I don't know, like it's the, the like elevation of that idea or something. I think, I think I feel sort of like reached its, its Zenith in like maybe the seventies or the eighties. And like that, you know, over the last few decades, a lot, you know, like it has become, you know, apparent that there are great chefs from everywhere and mm -hmm. that like lots of countries have like this deep, like historical um food culture that is pervasive and that people take very seriously and yeah it does. so i don't know it just seems like less of a thing now to me like the french chef or something but uh, i don't know i guess bill buford or at least like you know up until like a decade ago still um in his mind that was like uh sort of like an iconic thing i think that, like that for i don't want to put words in my parents generation's mouth but like i think that probably for my parents generation like french food was fine dining and there wasn't fine right. dining to be had that wasn't french yeah yeah and i i definitely recognize that but yeah to me that seems like an antiquated idea a little yes. bit so it seems weird that you know that he would think that that's something and especially after having gone to italy and worked with a seam butcher and like all the having all these other food experiences having like tons mm -hmm. of amazing food experiences in um in the states and being a part of like the high-end sort of like foodie community and getting like invites to the james beard awards and all of these types of things i would think that someone like bill buford would have like a sort of like a more global view so you, re you, you but, reject his initial premise that french chefs are even worth learning about. i'm just kidding <laughs> oh man 
you're afraid to put words in your parents' generation's <laughs> mouth, but you're not afraid to put them in your co-host's <laughs> mouth. Um, <laughs> no, I, I just like, I, I do think it's a little weird that that's what he decided that he wanted to do. But at the same time, like, I don't know, like, I think part of it was just like him knowing that he wanted to take on like a really challenging learning experience about food and cooking. And that's just sort of what he does. And he's a writer and that's what he's passionate about. And he sort of does it in this like, um, uh, hands-on anthropological kind of way where he just immerses himself in it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess he just wanted to immerse himself in that. It probably, you know, doesn't really, uh, pay dividends in the like narrative to downplay the right. you know the importance of French food or something mm-hmm. if you know that's what he decided to do. Um, but there's like you know it it touches on his like peripheral relationships with a lot of um, a lot of really important chefs in the states and in France. Uh, who sort of um, Daniel Balud being probably the sort of largest kind of like overall um, figure in the book. Balud kind of makes it possible for him to move to Lyon and mm. go to school there and get a job there. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he moves his whole family to Lyon, France, and they live there for like, I can't remember exactly how long. It's like four or five years or something oh, well, like that. Yeah. Well, he... Um, goes to uh, the French Culinary Institute uh, in Lyon and then works in a bakery in Lyon and a couple of restaurants and has some really crazy experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, if you're into food books, it's like a lot of fun to read. It has kind of, to me, it wasn't as like maybe like I, when I read heat, I remember the narrative being like very cohesive and kind of driving in this book. I feel like it's a little bit more like he's driving towards a premise, but he actually has like two or three premises that he's kind of driving towards. And I feel like he never really lands on any of them. And kind of by the end of the book, he's sort of changed the premise a little bit, Mm -hmm. um, in terms of where he winds up in the conclusion. Um, but, um, but yeah, there's some really interesting stories. He like meets all these like crazy French chefs. He meets Paul Bocuse oh, yeah. and and uh, just does a lot of cooking with like famous chefs in and around Lyon. And um, and you know, like there are passages in the book where he's learning how to make dishes that are just like endlessly fascinating. Mm-hmm. And oh, cool. And like, and so one of the premises I think is like, or or one of the things that he's kind of trying to draw attention to is like how tough the culture can be in French restaurants and like, whether that's on a precipice of like having to sort of like change because of social norms and stuff like Mm -hmm. that, Um, which is an interesting premise, but I don't really think he gets anywhere aside from maybe being a little bit apologetic for like it for like french Mm -hmm. uh like harsh french restaurant culture you mean he defends it is that what you mean um i i definitely wouldn't say that he defends it and he definitely like talks pretty frankly about how he felt pretty awkward in some of those situations Mm -hmm. but he also like you know 
didn't extricate himself from it and isn't like and and is kind of like more i guess understanding of it than i think like maybe not apologetic but but to some extent understanding of it mm-hmm. which i think is a little weird and felt a little antiquated to me as well um but i mean i also know that it's real so mm-hmm. i don't know i don't know what he's supposed to say like oh i'm above all this i mean you know he's there right trying to work in a French restaurant and putting up with like the, the toxic culture as a result of it. So it'd be pretty hypocritical for him to be there doing it. And then also at the same time say, Oh, this is horrible, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. um, so, but (laughs) the kind of the nugget of what I wanted to get to in my book report is that like, it seems like one of the, uh, like upfront, one of the premises of the book is because he, he knows a lot about Italian food. And I think he actually wrote another book that I haven't read. That's about like him learning more Italian cooking, not just the butchery. Um, but he, it seems like from the beginning, he's kind of trying to say that he has some like sources that show that like French cuisine was basically invented by Italians okay. and imported to France. Yeah. And it's sort of like this thing that he's kind of leaning into in different parts of the narrative throughout the book mm-hmm. and trying to show that there is this sort of like discussion about whether that's a real thing or right. not. Yeah. And, um, you know, and him also like bringing up that prospect to French chefs and like gauging their reactions and, and things like yes. that. And then, you know, it turns out that by the end of the book, the conclusion that he basically comes to is that you can't make a conclusion about that kind of thing. Because even if you can find historical texts that show that, clearly, that doesn't tell the whole story, you Mm -hmm. know, like, just because someone happened to document something doesn't mean that the idea didn't come from somewhere else or, you know, wasn't learned by just natural migration of people passing recipes on trade routes and borders, you know, people next to borders passing Mm -hmm. their recipes to each other and having access to the same ingredients. And I think if I remember right, that uh, I think that's a common story that's told that, and when they try and make it sound historical, there's usually a reference to, there was like one of the Medici's of Florence was married to uh royalty right. in France and they brought their entire kitchen crew with them. Um, but yeah, it doesn't, yeah. I don't think that Catherine de Medici yeah, yeah, yeah. is like apparently the source of like the origin of French right. cooking or something. Yeah, exactly. And, and he, he like goes pretty in depth about like the actual documentation of those things and like tries to sort of like tease apart what could potentially be true and what is most likely just um, like made up stories yes. or whatever. Yeah. But in the end, there is no conclusion to be drawn right. really. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's sort of like he sets it up as a premise of his book. And I don't know if this is a similar experience for all readers of the book, but like sort of as soon as he brought up the premise, I was just like, this is not, a, this is not a premise with a conclusion. Right. So what are we, where are we going with this? Mm-hmm. You know, like, and then, you know, like basically by the end of the book, you know, he, has to pretty much come out and say that it is not a premise with a conclusion you know and and so in some way i guess 
it was sort of validating, you know, like it, I, I was glad that that was the direction that he went in and didn't just say, oh, yeah, well, according to this text, this thing was a thing. And so right. therefore French cuisine is French or therefore French cuisine is Italian or something like mm-hmm. I'm glad that by the end of the book, he says, well, you can't really actually know for sure. <laughs> right. But, you know, but at the same time, it's it, you know, it was somewhat dissatisfying because like if you know like if you're smart enough to know which i'm sure he is that you can't ever actually like you know in any kind of like accurate way look at the published history of cookbooks and things like that and say one way or the other whose cuisine came from where then why are you like kind of pushing it as the premise of your book but right so yeah, but there are a lot of great food stories in it. Um, oh, this is so some dumb. weird stories about having to move to another country and having to go to the passport office and stuff too, which I wasn't always like super excited about. But you mean oh, you weren't always excited to read the stories? Is that what you mean? Or you well to listen to? Them, oh, sorry. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of that stuff I was kind of like, mm, I don't know if this needs to be in the book. <laughs> this could have been a hundred like, pages, Bill Buford. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it was a big, like, it was a crazy experience moving his entire family to France. But yeah, like, I don't know if I necessarily needed to know the details of his interview with the French consulate mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, you uh, just a minute ago, in a sentence, you said "whose cuisine." You said something like, "Are we ever really going to know whose cuisine?" Blah blah blah. But uh-huh. in my mind, if I hear the words whose cuisine, I immediately think reigns supreme. Whose cuisine reigns supreme? <laughs> oh, yeah. Whoops. listening to Food Court, a podcast recorded in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Food Court is hosted by Alan Sudeby and Shale McDonald. Theme music by Ryan and Shale McDonald. Make sure to subscribe to Food Court in Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or in your favorite podcast player. We love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at feedback at foodcourt.fm or find us on Instagram at foodcourtpodcast. If you want to spread the word, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with a fresh new episode. Thanks for listening.